Good morning and welcome to the Court of Appeals. My name is John Tyson. To my right, there is my panel. To my right is Judge April Wood. To my left is Judge Jeffrey Carpenter. We will be hearing the case today. We have one case on the docket, State versus Woodley. I'd like to introduce our courtroom staff. Uh, Ms. Daddy Saunders is our clerk. Our marshal is uh, Mr. Richard Remiliar, and we appreciate them being here today. Um, are there any preliminary matters to come before the court before we get started? Okay, hearing none, we'll uh, hear from the appellate. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. I am Assistant Appellate Defender Dan Schatz, and I appear today on behalf of the defendant, Raymond Woodley, who was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole at a trial which took place at the height of the <coughs> winter 2020-2021 pandemic surge before vaccines were readily available and before things sort of reached the new normal that I think we're about at now. And at that trial, Mr. Woodley's counsel candidly told the court that due to uh, COVID concerns, she was just not mentally prepared to try the case. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, and I intend to spend about the first three quarters of my time talking about the motion to continue and the uh, public trial issue that sort of arose out of the circumstances of the trial, and then spend the remaining time talking about the evidentiary issues, issue four in the brief. Let me ask just a preliminary question. The, uh, the issue of whether to grant a continuance or not is ordinarily <clears throat> a matter that's left to the trial judge's discretion. Um, I understand that if there's a constitutional deprivation that is asserted, that it could rise to a different level of review. Yes, that's correct, Your Honor. So, and so, the most recent North Carolina Supreme Court cases touching about on that are the CAB case, which is cited in the reply brief, and uh, State versus Johnson, which is discussed in, in both parties' principal briefs. And, and what the North Carolina Supreme Court has said is that when a motion to continue uh, raises a constitutional issue, uh, appellate review is de novo. And uh, it is important. One of the things I want to talk about today is, is sort of the prejudice standard that arises from that, because that's discussed in the briefs. Um, so is the constitutional issue a <clears throat> right to counsel issue, or is it a confrontation issue, or exactly what is the in, specific constitutional issue? So in this case, there, there were two, two, or depending on how you parse it, two or three constitutional issues. Really, it's, it's an issue of effective assistance of counsel under the Sixth Amendment and under Article I, Section 23 of the State Constitution. And the motion to continue also raised specifically, and this is in uh, paragraph 11 of the mo written motion, which is in the record, um, a public trial issue that, that under the circumstances that were then prevailing, uh, having the trial at that time would not afford Mr. Woodley the public trial that the Constitution calls for. Um, so those, those, and within the effective assistance of counsel, it's both counsel's performance and sort of a conflict between her personal interest in avo avoiding exposure to COVID, which she was very upfront about, versus Mr. Woodley's interest in the outcome of the trial. Um, so, so we have sort of, that's why I say two or three, depending on how you parse it out, the, both effective assistance of counsel and to the extent there's a conflict issue, both sort of derived from the core right to counsel. And you claim that counsel's performance was deficient in this? Yes, case? yes, counsel's, and, and even, but even from, from the outset, counsel candidly told the judge in the motion to continue, I am not going to be able to effectively represent Mr. Woodley. So she, she, she came into court knowing she was not bringing her A game and told the court that. And, um, I don't think anyone really brought their A-game that week, and the reason I say that is one of the first things that gets discussed in the, in the hearing on the motion is 
this letter that Chief Justice Newby sent out the day, the night, evening before the trial was to start, that was um, letting it's addressed to all judicial branch stakeholders. <clears throat> and my understanding is it went out on an email blast to every member of the state bar as well as everyone in the judicial branch. Um, and, and so, in that order, or in the letter, and in the and so that letter says, here's the order I'm going to enter on January 14th, the prior Chief Justice's order, uh, which went into effect December 14th, is about to expire. I'm letting some of the directives expire, and I'm continuing some of the other directives. Um, and so it's in the, in the hearing, it's just that defense counsel and the lead prosecutor actually talked about this letter and talked about it, and it, nobody went and looked and said, okay, this letter says there's a Chief Justice Beasley's order is getting ready to expire. What does that order say? I mean, uh, in, in his letter, Chief Justice Newby specifically said, I'm allowing Emergency Directive 1 to expire. Well, that's the directive that says nothing for, no jury trials for 30 days. That and, and Directive 10 both read together say that. And the introductory paragraph to Chief Justice Beasley's order, which had been entered on December 14th, explains all that and says, in order to slow the spread of COVID in the court system, I am order, reinstating Emergency Directive 1 and ordering that there be no jury trials for the, to commence in the next 30 days, which included, you know, this trial sort of overlapped the end of Chief Justice Beasley's order and the beginning of Chief Justice Newby's order. Let me ask you this. The, I understand from the record that Judge Tillett, who's the senior resident Superior Court judge up in that district, had, and the uh, Chief District Court judge had issued directives yeah. that had been submitted to Chief Justice Beasley and had been approved. Is that, is that memory correct? Th that is correct, and that was done under, under I, I think it's Directive 18. There's, a, there's another one of the directives in the, in all, that was in all of the emergency orders. And, and that, that plan was instituted in November before Chief Justice Beasley's order of December 14th, which ordered no jury trials for 30 days. So, so in terms of the timing sequence, that plan had been adopted and approved before this, this surge in the pandemic and before um, Chief Justice Beasley issued uh, her order on December 14th. So that order has to be seen in terms, and, and that order was in response to the increasing, to the surge in the pandemic. And so, so I think that order of December 14th from Chief Justice Beasley is the, is the controlling order as far as what could or could not take place. And if, if the procedures, if the order had left to the local senior resident and chief district court judge the manner in which proceedings were to occur, uh, the procedures, um, and those have been approved, and basically that's what Chief Justice Newby's memorandum said, that the local judges are to implement procedures in their own districts. Is that correct? That, that is correct, and that order was, went into effect the third day of this trial. Let me get a bigger yes. picture then. Sure. Is there anything about the facilities or the procedures within the facilities themselves that you are contending on appeal did not meet the criteria that had been established and approved or that they in any way prejudice your client? Uh, yes, Your Honor. There, there's one area where, where I don't think the protocol was followed, and that was in marking out the jury room for social distancing and, and in social distancing within the jury room. And there are some photographs in, in the record on appeal, and I believe they're maybe on record pages 88 and 89. I'm, I'm going off memory there, but they're in, somewhere in there. There's the jury room, and that's also the room where the, where the pretrial motion on the continuance was held. Um, and, and it's not marked for social distancing, and it doesn't appear to be large enough room to accommodate 12 jurors with full social distancing. Um, with respect to the pretrial hearing that was conducted in that room, you know, there's some discussion of that on page 
205 of the transcript, and, and the state in its brief says that, that the judge said, well, th that it was compliant, but that's not exactly what the judge says. The judge says, I want to make, you know, correct something that I said earlier. There were nine people in that room when we heard the, the motion. That's what the judge, where it was previously, I think the number of 11 had been floated. But even then, if you, if you look at that room and figure out, so there's room for one person on each side of the table, and those people all have to be spaced out six feet apart. By the time you get to 12 jurors, six on each side, you would need 30 feet of, of horizontal length for there to be so full social distancing. Was there any objection uh, raised by any juror or any concern in the record? There is no, there's nothing in, in, in the record from any juror, no. And, and I can't, again, that's, that's pure speculation as to whether they took the full time they would have deliberated otherwise or didn't or, that's, that's all speculation. Um, so, so, you know, I'm not relying on anything of that nature in, in, in contending that uh, this was, it was reversible error not to deny the motion to continue. But, but turning to that, so turning to the question of prejudice, you know, in its brief, the state points out that in our opening brief, we did not argue that this was a jurisdictional issue. But in, in preparing for this argument and thinking about it, I'm not sure that, that it isn't because Ordinarily, it's certainly not a classic subject matter jurisdiction issue of any, there's no case law that addresses the situation one way or the other and nothing that says it is. But, you know, subject matter jurisdiction is, is thought of as the court's authority to, to hear and decide a case. It goes more to the power of the court. The power of the court. But under Chief Justice Beasley's order, jury trial, it, it expressly prohibited jury trials from commencing within 30 days before January 14th. So, so on January 12th, when, when the trial court denied the motion to continue, there was a mandatory order from the Chief Justice saying no superior court, no, no jury trials anywhere in the state shall commence. That's a procedural issue, not a jurisdictional issue. It, it, again, I, it may well be, but, but I would point out that the, the section of Chapter 7A that gives Chief Justice's authority to issue these emergency orders is in an article captioned jurisdiction. And it is, it may be, in a sense it's procedural, but, but it is a flat prohibition ordering that there be no jury trials to commence. So, so, so no judge has authority to disobey the Chief Justice's order. It's a, basically a chain of command issue, I guess you could think of it. And, and that's the order that's in place and so Arguably, this is a matter of the trial court's authority to commence the trial when it did. And again, there's no case law on this one way or the other, and I'm not suggesting that it's, you know, that there's a case that I can point to that says this is jurisdictional. Let me ask you this. If the order was entered December, December the 14th for 30 days, it would have expired on the 13th, correct? It expired, as I understand it, to close the business on the 13th and Chief Justice Newby's order went into effect immediately. They, they merged from one to the next. When, when did the trial actually commence? Because the jury was out until the 15th. The trial commenced on the 12th. Okay. Uh, jury started select, picking juries and, and I mean all. And, 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 and the jury was fully picked on the 12th and evidence was started to be presented on the 13th when Chief Justice Beasley's order. Expired. Uh, was in effect that, uh, you know, it was in effect until that day, through that day. Um, but so, so, so there, is, there is certainly a way to look at this that, that, that suggests this is a jurisdictional problem. But even if it isn't, we get to the question of, of prejudice. And because this is a constitutional issue, the usual rule for constitutional issues is it's an error, is, a constitutional error is prejudicial unless the state can show it to be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Now the state in its brief cites a case called State v. Searles to the effect that the defendant, even if it's a constitutional issue, the defendant has the burden to show prejudice in addition to error. And I don't think that's, the, the cases do, do say that, but I don't, think, I don't think it's that simple because if you look at both the CAB case that came out uh, after our principal brief was filed and the State v. Johnson case, 
the Supreme Court makes clear that, that when a motion to continue raises a constitutional issue, it is prejudicial unless the state shows it to be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. And I would particularly call the court's well, attention. Let me back up on that to make sure. I think my understanding might be that if we find a constitutional error occurred, then the burden shift. But there must be a threshold finding of a constitutional violation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yes, Your Honor. Certainly, certainly that's... So if we don't find a constitutional violation, then there's no burden shifting back to the state. That would be correct. But, but here, of course, the state doesn't contend that it was not... You know, the state never says it was not error to deny the motion to continue. I think in light of the mandatory order from Chief Justice Beasley, the, the state is only focusing on the question of prejudice. And so I want to turn to if, pay, paragraphs 14 and 15 of the State v. Johnson decision. So, so, which is talking, it's under a little caption called standard of review. And in paragraph 14, it says, it, it says the exact quote that the state puts in its brief, uh, regardless of the nature of a motion to continue, whether constitutional or not, denial is, is new grounds for trial only upon showing uh, error and prejudice. But then the very first paragraph of, first sentence of paragraph 15 explains what they mean. It goes on to say, if the defendant shows that the time allowed for his counsel to prepare for trial was constitutionally inadequate, in other words, if there's a constitutional error, he is entitled to a new trial unless the state shows that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. So, and then they go on in, in paragraph, in the subsequent paragraphs, when they're talking about the initial part, and they use the term prejudice, but, but I don't think they use it in the regular way, because what they're really focusing on is did it have an impact, you know, in, in the Johnson case, counsel was saying, hey, I got a ton of late discovery, the state just told me Friday before a Monday trial, they're going to use certain things that they previously told me they weren't going to use and I didn't look at them. So that's what, that was sort of the factual background. And they talk about how it was correct that the trial, court, the trial lawyer, excuse me, the defense counsel needed more time to absorb that material and be able to effectively use it. But there's no discussion whatsoever of outcome determinative, how it affected the outcome of the trial. They're really just talking about the impact on trial counsel. And you know, in this case, what we have is a trial counsel who, who like I say, frankly, came and told the trial court, I, I, you know, I, I am not mentally prepared to try this. This is, this is really, really something I've, I've certainly never seen or heard of before. I've been doing this a long time. There's no case on it. I've never seen a case where counsel stood up and said, Judge, for, for personal reasons, I can't do this right now. Was there a motion to withdraw? There was discussion about withdrawal, and this is on pages 30 to 31 of, of, of the transcript. And in its brief, the state characterizes this as uh, defense counsel being offered to move to withdraw but not doing so. But in fact, what counsel told the court, trial court, you know, and, and of course counsel's proposed remedy for her situation is, is continue the case once she, she had already and keep in mind, the, the very first vaccines were in, in the middle of December of 2020. She had already had her first vaccine and hadn't had enough time to get her second vaccine and told the court, I'm trying to get myself prepared where I can do this, but, but because I haven't had the second vaccine yet, I, I can't do it. Um, and and so, so there's discussion of withdrawal and, and counsel tells the trial court, if you think that's appropriate, that's fine. Trial court says, well, if I do that, I may withdraw you from all your cases. Counsel says, if you think that's appropriate, that's fine, do that. So, so there wasn't a formal motion, because that isn't the remedy, formal motion to withdraw, that is, because that isn't really the remedy for this problem that the trial counsel thought was, was the best remedy. But, but, it would, but certainly she didn't shy away from it when, when it was brought up and, and essentially invited the trial court to, to order her withdrawn from the case. If, the, if that was what the trial court thought was the appropriate thing to do. There had been some speedy trial motions filed in this case too, right? Uh, I don't know if it was a motion, but defend, the, the defendant personally had indicated previously a desire for a speedy trial. But at this hearing, the defendant personally makes very clear to the judge, I will wait, sit here and wait in jail as long as it takes for my lawyer to be ready to try this case. And so, so whatever those concerns were, 
by the time the trial court ruled, there, there should be no concern over that. And that, that by the, would, in fact, work as a waiver of any speedy trial claim based, uh, based on any delay from this continuum. The judgment shows over 900 days of pretrial detention credit, correct? Three years? I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm sure that's correct. Um, and was not this trial date preemptively agreed to and set? Had there not been a, a pretrial conference where this was the date that was set for the trial? Yes, Your Honor. That had been in, in uh, November of 2020. And, and as counsel explained in the hearing, at that time she didn't anticipate this surge. And, you know, so Chief Justice Beasley's order, when it came out on December 14th, so emergency directive number one, says all superior court and district court proceedings must be scheduled or rescheduled for a date no sooner than 14 January 2021. And, and there's some last provisions that, that don't necessarily apply here. But, but, but so basically as soon as that, that, as soon as Chief Justice Beasley's order came well, out counsel, in December. Hmm? Section D, the unless in Section D, where it says the senior resident superior court judge, chief business court judge or chief district court judge determines that the proceeding can be conducted under conditions that protect the health and safety of all participants. Wouldn't that apply here? It might, but I, I don't think you can just look at the November, the earlier protocol and say that's, that's good enough. It, it, it is possible that, that the uh, chief uh, uh, district court, you know, the, the appropriate parties or judges determine that, but there's nothing in the record one way or the other. But even so, that cannot supersede the, the plain and unequivocal language <coughs> of emergency directive 10, which, which unequivocally states no jury trial shall commence. So, so of the things they could do, uh, that, that, that explicit un, unequivocal language means that one thing they can't do is jury trial. That, that language, is, 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 and that, that is also in the uh, introductory paragraphs of, of the order. Um, the day after evidence was presented, at that point, jury trials would have been permiss permissible. Yes, Your Honor. But I, would st I also want to point out, and I think this is also important, even under Chief Justice Newby's order, which continued emergency directive too, as trial counsel explained at the hearing, she fell into a category of persons that even under Chief Justice Newby's order were not supposed to be inside a courthouse because she, she was residing for the period of this trial with, with her mother who was both a trauma nurse and had been directly in close contact with the mother's sister, counsel's aunt, who tested positive the Friday before this trial started. Um, and so under Chief Justice both Chief Justice Beasley's and Chief Justice Newby's orders under Emergency Directive 2, which was the same in both orders, um, uh, trial counsel's mother fell in Category C of, of those of the people described in there, and trial counsel fell into Category E because she was in, had been in, residing with and in close contact with her mother. So at that time, and again, even under Chief Justice Newby's order, it recognizes that catastrophic conditions exist in all 100 counties in North Carolina. And that, the, you know, it, it, just Chief Justice Newby's order steps down some of the, you know, allows some of the directives to expire, but it still recognizes we're in, a, we're in an emergency situation, we're in catastrophic conditions, and we're trying to slow, you know, slow and prevent the spread of COVID through the court system. And Emergency Directive 2, once, once Chief Justice Newby's order allows the, the no jury trials uh, directives to expire, still, these are the guidelines for protecting everyone involved in the court system from the spread of COVID. And, and so under that order, defense counsel still should not have been in uh, a court. So even, even if Chief Justice Beasley's order hadn't been out there, we would still be contending that conducting this trial violated uh, Chief Justice Newby's order as far as emergency directive to directing the trial counsel not be a, be a person who should not be inside a courthouse at that time. Mr. Sass, I do want to uh, make sure you have plenty of time on your remaining thank, thank as you. Well. So, so moving off of that, I just want to say a couple of things with regard to the public trial issue very quickly, and I, I may not have time to get to the evidentiary 
issues, but, but we've sent in a memorandum of additional authority. Uh, it was a federal case from the Ninth Circuit, but in there, it, it sort of catalogs what other courts have been doing in response to COVID. And, and it recognized that, that other trial courts, you know, the dividing line was whether there was, courts had allowed visual access to the trial. And, and it talks about, um, you know, either through a video feed or making room in the back rows of the court of the courtroom. And, and so what happens in this case, the way this comes up, uh, this is on, on transcript page 178, counsel is making a record. And I, I, if I read it correctly, and I, I confirmed this with, with Ms. Ruffin this morning, there had been an earlier chambers conference where this was discussed and she's really recreating the record of what was discussed there is the defendant's father had been excluded from the courtroom during jury selection. And as she's doing this, you know, the state says she never says we object, we're, we're moving, but, but it's clear. And what happens is as she's talking, trial counsel actually cuts her off in mid-sentence. So if you, if you look at that page, at the end of the time trial counsel's talking, there's a little, the court reporter put a couple of dashes and the judge starts talking, and he, he immediately starts making findings about the basis for closing the courtroom. So it is, I think under Rule 10, it is clear in context that the trial court understood what, what trial counsel was doing there and, and responded to it by making a ruling that was a ruling that's appropriate for, for uh, closing the courtroom. The problem with that ruling is it just didn't allow for other alternatives and didn't explain why you know, they're already using a jury overflow room. They could have sent two more rows of jurors there and had, had room in the back for, for members of the public, including the defendant's father. And, and there's just no explanation in what the trial court says at that point that explains why there wasn't some option that would have accommodated both the, the, proto, you know, the need to, for social distancing and opening the courtroom for the entire trial to Mr. Woodley's father. The, the U.S. Supreme Court case, the Presley case, very clearly says keeping a family, you know, keeping the public out of jury selection is, is per se structural error, reversible error, and that's what happened here. And, and just like in that case, there, there was no explanation. You know, the, the judge gave a reason for closing the court and what the interest was, which was we don't, we don't contest that, but but never explained why both interests couldn't be accommodated, and that's what this this Ninth Circuit case that I sent in the memo of additional authority says is even in COVID, even under these emergency situations, there has to be a compromise, you know, both, both the constitutional issues and uh, the social distancing issues, the safety issues have to be, have to be accommodated. And, and one last thought on that is if, it, if that wasn't possible, then the answer should have been to, to continue the trial rather than conduct it when uh, the defendant's constitutional could not be honored. Uh, if there are no we, further questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time. Okay, thank you, Mr. Shatt. Here from the state. Morning, Mr. Montgomery. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, may it please the court, I am Robert Montgomery of the Department of Justice, and I represent the state of North Carolina in this case. Uh, so far, there's been much discussion about emergency directives, health protocols, and the very legitimate concerns of defense counsel. But the one overarching question in this case is this. Did the defendant receive a fair trial? And the answer to that question is yes. Defendant did receive a fair trial. So to begin with talking about the motion to continue, and I think it's important to talk about the standard here for that, uh, on, on review. So it was based on a constitutional, or is based on a constitutional right, and so it is reviewed de novo. But the Searles case from the North Carolina Supreme Court, as well as the Johnson case that defendant has mentioned, say that the defendant has to meet this threshold burden of showing prejudice. And the reality is, most of the time when you have a motion to continue, uh, it's about whether counsel could be prepared. Did counsel have enough time? Was counsel just appointed? And there is this presumption at times of prejudice that no attorney could be prepared given this amount of time. This case obviously is unique. This is different from 
perhaps any case that has ever considered this issue. The trial court was in a very difficult position here. This case was almost three years old. There was no end of the pandemic in sight. Yes, there were some people that had received vaccines, but they were not widely available at that time. And so we have to think about what the judge had to consider in that moment. And as, as a result of his decision, then we have to look at whether the defendant has shown prejudice. Now, in this instance, the defendant is contending that there was a conflict uh, of interest on the part of defense counsel. That's a classic ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And we know that with ineffective assistance of counsel claims, one of the components of that is prejudice. So yes, if there's a constitutional violation, then the state has to show that there is harmless error beyond a reasonable doubt. But some constitutional violations, the component of prejudice is part of the determination of whether there is a constitutional violation. And that is what we have here. Looking at the record, Mr. Montgomery, it looks to me that counsel in this case interposed every reasonable pretrial objection, sought to exclude evidence or motions in lemonade. Uh, there was, this, this case was well lawyered uh, up until all the preliminary motions and defenses were interposed. So I guess, is there some assertion uh, that the counsel's performance during trial itself was below the threshold required under Strickland? Uh, yes, Judge Tyson, the defendant does make a number of arguments that counsel, uh, counsel's performance was deficient and somehow prejudiced him. Those are not made in the context of an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Defendant goes out of his way not to make an ineffective assistance well, that, of counsel. Well, that, that leads to my next question. I didn't see that claim raised. It is not raised. It is only uh, through the motion to continue that it is brought up. And defendant cites a number of, details a number of reasons why defendant believes counsel's conflict somehow prejudiced him. And the state has gone through each of those in its brief. And uh, we certainly don't have time really to go through each of them here. But suffice it to say, Council's performance either was not deficient or in the areas in which it may have been deficient, there was no prejudice to defendant. Defendant received a fair trial here, and that is the bottom line. Now, I do want to say something about Justice, Chief Justice Beasley's uh, order and Chief Justice Newby's order. And um, there's been some talk here about jurisdiction now. There was not a whole lot of that in the brief. The state in a footnote cited the Ely case for the proposition that a, a judge's authority comes from the North Carolina Constitution and uh, his or her commission from the Chief Justice, which as far as, as everything I can tell here, uh, Judge Foster was in, in court properly, everything was a properly constituted court, and so there was jurisdiction here. I, I did want to point out, it's 7A39D, 7A39, is the statute that talks about emergency directives, is one of the things it talks about. 7A39D says this, and I'll quote, nothing in this section shall be construed to abrogate or diminish the inherent judicial powers of the Chief Justice or the judicial branch. And so this court had inherent powers under the Constitution to proceed with this trial. And nothing about the emergency directive that, are, that candidly was in effect when this trial started, uh, Chief Justice Beasley's uh, order, nothing about that took away the jurisdiction of the court. Um, and so, and it also seemed that no one was aware of Chief Justice Beasley's order being in effect. No one mentions it. The, the trial court is not told uh, that there's discussion about Chief Justice Newby's order that is going to be in effect, but there's nothing about Chief Justice Beasley's order, which as, as defendant has stated, went into effect on December 14th. And again, uh, as, as defendant has said, there was a decision, there was an agreement to try this case back in November. Certainly once Chief Justice Beasley's order went into effect on December 14th, 
Council could have moved to continue sometime at that point. But there's nothing, there's nothing in the record that indicates until January 6th, uh, a few days before trials to begin, that council is asking for a continuance. And in fact, the, the written motion to continue is filed the day before trial begins uh, in this case. And as far as the protocols, certainly the protocols were not going to be any different two days after this trial began than they were when this trial began. There was nothing, there was going to be nothing different if this case started uh, being tried on January 14th. There were still going to be masks required. There were still going to be social distancing required. All of those protocols were going to be in effect. Uh, and certainly there's been talk about the jury room and social distancing there. Um, I think, again, while there may have been some things that and I don't even know if those things were not done properly. There's a photograph, but it's difficult to tell about the floor, but maybe they're not marked. But in the end, it still comes down to, did defendant receive a fair trial? Is there some reason that any violation of some protocol had any effect whatsoever on this trial? And it did not. Um, and back to the standard a little bit on conflict of interest. There's some argument in the defendant's brief that this is a conflict of interest similar to when a, an attorney is representing multiple defendants, in which case there doesn't have to be this showing of prejudice on the part uh, of the defendant. But uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court in Phillips said when you can determine whether there is prejudice due to a conflict, then there's not this presumption of prejudice. There has to be this showing of prejudice. and. Um, the CAB case that was cited in the defendant's reply brief, obviously that's a very different case in that it's a termination of parental rights case, but in paragraph 34 of that opinion, the Supreme Court states very clearly that the father in that case had to show prejudice as a result of the denial of his motion to continue. Uh, and and it, it addresses how in that paragraph, it addresses how a parent shows prejudice. So that is not inconsistent with what the court had already said uh, in Searles and in Johnson. Um, and defendant mentions that this was an instance in which counsel actually comes and says that she believes she was mentally unfit to go forward with this trial. At the same time, when asked, whether she was prepared, notwithstanding her concerns about COVID, was she prepared to go forward? She said that she was prepared to go forward. Um, and certainly, uh, I, I heard defendant's argument concerning the mo to uh, her opportunity to withdraw. And yes, she did seem amenable to withdrawing, but she never said, I would, I want to withdraw. Uh, defendant says, that the trial court could have ordered her to withdraw, and maybe that's true, but uh, she certainly had the op opportunity in light of this conflict between her health concerns and representing the defendant, she certainly could have moved to withdraw, and we know that the trial court would have allowed that. Well, the, the transcript of that colloquy is on pages 32 to 36 of the, of the record, the transcript. And it looks like to me the trial judge clearly tried to separate concerns that counsel may have about personal health risk from her preparation. Is that a fair summary? That, that would be a fair summary. And I'm just reading right here. Are you legally ready, done your preparation, are you ready to present your case and defend your client based upon the work to be done. Based on the work to be done, yes. So I, it looks like to me maybe there was some clarification by Judge Foster, some get to the, you know, boil it down, are, are you wanting out, are you going to go forward, are you ready to go forward? Is That's my reading, and I'll certainly ask counsel for the defendant when he comes back on rebuttal, but I just, I mean, I, I think that's a fair reading of, of the colloquy. 
I, I believe that is a fair reading, certainly. And I, I think in no way do, do I want to stand here and diminish the legitimate concerns of counsel about her health uh, during this trial. And certainly the directives, both the directives, from a technical standpoint, seem to say she shouldn't be there. But that is not the question again here. Uh, the question is, did that affect this trial in such a way that the defendant received a trial that was not fair? And the state's contention is, no, it did not. When you look at the entire trial, uh, there, there was not a deficient performance or prejudice from, the, uh, perform uh, from how counsel uh, did carry out this case such that there is any reason to grant the defendant a new trial in this case. Um, I, I want to go ahead and, and move a little bit into the, unless there are further questions about that issue, I, I would like to move into talking about the closure in this case. And um, one of the, as the state has argued in its brief, counsel did not ever say that there was an objection to this. There was an observation by counsel that uh, defendant's father had not been allowed to enter the courtroom. Now, one of the things that I think is important about this, and defendant talks about, a defendant in this argument has talked about an off-the-record chambers conference that I don't think that this court should consider in any way whatsoever. We have the record here, and what the record shows is that counsel said she became aware at lunch break on the first day that defendant's father had not been allowed in the courtroom. But she said nothing on the record until the end of the day. Uh, it was too late at that point to say anything on the record about this. The record does not show that there were any other exclusions from the courtroom, and the judge and the protocols indicated that there would be no exclusions, or at least there would be some people allowed in for once the testimony began. So the only thing we're talking about here is the defendant's father being excluded uh, for the voir dire. But again, this was not put on the record until the end of the, end of the day. And if you look at the timeline in this case, and I don't mean to get into such detail here, but I think it's important to understand jury selection began that day at 11.26 a.m. That's on transcript page 41. That's on the 12th, correct? That's correct, on the 12th at 11.26 a.m. The lunch break occurred at 12.30 p.m. that day. At that point, three jurors had been seated. That is the point, an hour, an hour's worth of jury selection had occurred, uh, an hour and four minutes, thereabouts. And that is when counsel says she received a phone call from defendant's father that he was unable to get into the courtroom. But she didn't say anything about it on the record. The court reconvened at 2 p.m. Uh, there, there was a recess uh, during the afternoon, and jury selection was completed at 4.15 that day. So uh, it was from 12.30, the lunch break, until 4.15 before this was put on the record that defendant said that, uh, that the father was not allowed to enter the courtroom. And, that's important because really it was too late at that point. I mean, this had occurred and it wasn't going to happen for the rest of the trial. There were not going to be these kinds of exclusions and at least defendant has not said there were these kinds of exclusions. And the Allen case cited in the memorandum of additional authority from the Ninth Circuit uh, was very different in that that was a total closure. The court there said just giving audio for this trial results in a total closure of this for everyone. In this case, we have a partial closure, not a total closure. And in Allen, there's this whole dis discussion about alternatives and how video could have been used. Um, there are plenty of cases in North Carolina where there have been partial closures during trial when uh, the, the public has been excluded during certain testimony, uh, there has been a partial closure. There's no case from this court that says, well, you should have considered the alternative of streaming video and had that available. That's not what this court has said. Uh, and there are plenty of cases that talk about de minimis 
closures. We have one person who was excluded during this uh, jury selection. Now, granted, Presley very much says that uh, this, this, uh, this uh, public trial uh, right applies to uh, jury selection. But this case is very different from Presley. The defendant would say that it's indistinguishable. But in Presley, the court said, and again, this is all on the record when it was happening rather than after the fact, the court said, I'm not letting members of the family in here to intermingle with the prospective jurors. And basically just said it was logistical reasons. We, we can't let them in here. The US Supreme Court said, well, that could apply in any case. That certainly cannot be uh, an overriding reason to um, exclude the public. In this case, the reason is very clear that in observing social distancing, there was a need to spread the prospective jurors out in the courtroom. So unlike Presley, there's very clearly an overriding interest here. In fact, even the Allen case admits that there's an overriding uh, interest here. And Allen doesn't say anything, uh, just as an aside, Allen doesn't say anything about, well, the case should have been continued. That would have been uh, something that should have been done. No, that's not what the Allen case says. It only discusses uh, the fact that a streaming video uh, should have been used. In just how, do, how do we reconcile the public trial during the jury selection with an immediate, the father of the defendant? I, I understand there was capacity constraints in the courtroom based on distancing. And I understand that the defendant was not a minor here. The defendant was 21, 22 years old. So I guess, how do we reconcile that? That you know, immediate family members have a right to be present with the fact that you have a capacity constraint. And, and if, if, how, how do we balance those two? Well, I, I believe the, the the cases make pretty clear, uh, Waller makes pretty clear that um, closure is appropriate, complete closure is appropriate. If there's an overriding interest and the closure or is no broader than necessary and that alternatives are considered. So even if it's family members, they can be excluded if you have this overriding interest and, it's no, and the closure is no broader than necessary. And capacity constraint would be an overriding interest? Yes. So the, 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 that the pandemic was occurring, a need for social distancing, uh, to have the jurors in the courtroom, that is the overriding interest. Now, defendant, in the brief at least, talks about uh, the fact that the court didn't clearly talk about the alternatives being considered. But again, I think this goes back some to the fact that there was not a clear objection put on the record and also the fact that it, was, it had already happened. It was over. Nothing else was going to occur. But the court certainly needs to be put on notice that it needs to make these specific findings uh, about alternatives. And uh, this court in, uh, in Rollins uh, made very clear that if there is any kind of problem with this, if it's not clear what the records, or I'm sorry, what the findings were concerning alternatives, then uh, the matter can be remanded to the trial court to make those findings. Now, the state's position is that's not necessary here for all the reasons that I have already said, but if there was a problem here, the remedy is not a new trial. The remedy would be to send this back and allow the trial court to state what alternatives were considered and why those were not feasible. And um, again, there was no, certainly no discussion about audio or video or any of those things. We don't know what capacity they had to do this. Where were they going to put the defendant's father while they were doing something like a, a video stream? Those were all issues uh, caught up in the pandemic and social distancing. And uh, so there was no uh, violation in, in that instance. Um, I believe that's all I, I have on those. I have a few more minutes. I was just, I will just quickly make a point 
about the evidentiary issue uh, that is raised. And the, the only thing that I felt I, I wanted to say on that, in that matter was, uh, defendant in the reply brief takes issue with the state saying that um, defendant could have obtained the gun from his sister. Well, regardless of the language that was used in the state's brief, what the state meant by could have means it's a reasonable inference. There's a reasonable inference from the facts. It's not mere speculation. Mere speculation is when there are no facts to base anything on. Here you had an instance in which the gun was purchased by defendant's sister shortly before the murder. It was the same caliber as the murder weapon. They lived on the same street. The gun went missing. Uh, at some point, and defendant's sister claimed it was stolen, but never reported it. Those are the kind of facts that Is lead also to- also a fact defendant had applied for a pistol permit and been denied as well? That was not admitted at trial. That particular piece of evidence was excluded. I'm not exactly sure why it was excluded, but that evidence was excluded. So that is not part of the equation because it was excluded. And the text message uh, from the sister that evidently the, uh, the deceased had owed the defendant some money and did not, or had received money from the defendant. That message did come in, correct? Those messages did come in, that is correct. And they and were objected to, they came they in. They were objected to, the, those were objected to. Um, and it's, it's difficult, I was rereading the transcript to try to figure out exactly the basis that the judge used to permit uh, the specific Facebook uh, messages from defendant's vic uh, sister to the victim's sister concerning this, this, the fact that her brother had said this money was owed or that he had given this money in return for a gun. It's difficult to really figure out exactly the basis the trial court used uh, to admit that evidence, but- And, and the, that was from the sister who actually purchased the gun, right? Uh, that is from the sister who did later purchase the gun. This was, this was uh, nine months before the murder, so she had not purchased the gun yet, but that was from her. And, and part of the reason why it really doesn't matter what the uh, exception was or why this hearsay came into being and, and there was a lot of confusion. This was double hearsay. It got very complicated. I, I will say this is an example of why defendant's counsel was very much effective, is that she made all the right arguments about this and said all the right things concerning her objection to this. But in the end, regardless of whether it should have come in, it was not prejudicial. And I, I don't know if it was this issue or another issue that, that, uh, that the defendant says in the brief the state had to show overwhelming evidence to show something was not prejudicial. That's not, for, for this evidentiary issue, that is not the standard. The defendant had to show it was prejudicial and it is not prejudicial because again, it was about nine months before the murder. Uh, the victim adamantly said he was not involved in this. Uh, and in the end, it, it really just didn't matter much. In fact, the state did not even mention these Facebook messages in the closing argument. So when you look at the evidence that was presented, that there were four eyewitnesses to this murder, and certainly, certainly three of them um, were at the time that they saw what happened, smoking marijuana, granted, but one of those said he clearly saw the face of the defendant because the defendant pointed a gun at them in their car. He was very certain this was the defendant. And then the, the fourth uh, witness was Rashawn Cole, who was the defendant's cousin, who ultimately said that he was with the, defen the defendant when this happened. And in fact, there was evidence that he was later beaten up because he had told people what had happened. Now, the defendant tries to point him, uh, tries to point to him as some sort of alternate suspect uh, that is speculation. We talked about speculation earlier and what it was not, that is speculation. There's nothing that really points to uh, Mr. Cole as some kind of alternate suspect. Uh, so there was, there was plenary evidence that defendant was the one who committed this offense. And uh, th this hearsay statement that meant very little due to the passage of time. In fact, again, another reason 
counsel was very effective was that uh, she cross-examined on this issue uh, and, and diminished any value that it had. Uh, so while it was relevant, because it had at least slight probative value, it was not prejudicial to the defendant. Um, so I, I believe that is all I have, unless there are questions from the court. In the end, again, this is a case about whether the defendant received a fair trial. It, we can get called up in all kinds of issues about emergency directives and health protocols, and those are all important and serious matters. But for this defendant to get a new trial, this court will have to find that he did not receive a fair trial, and he did receive a fair trial. Mr. Montgomery, before you step away, uh, I want to, you mentioned the emergency directives. I want to circle back. I was listening to uh, your argument and opposing counsel's argument, and you mentioned <clears throat> the authority of the court to try these matters coming from the Constitution, to be sure that is correct. Um, but you also mentioned through commissions assigned by the Chief Justice. Um, you'll just have to take me at my word here. Uh, there's two ways those commissions get issued. One is by the biannual calendar assignments issued by the assistant director. The other is by individual commissions that may be issued that may be counter to what the, the biannual calendar said. Those are also issued by the assistant <coughs> director, uh, but under the uh, authority and power of the chief justice. My question is this. In light of the, the chief justice having to issue commissions for these actions, uh, to be authorized by the Superior Court judge. What's your, what's your position in regards to that emergency directive actually limiting the scope of those commissions through the emergency directive um, to, to conduct jury trials? <clears throat> I believe, Judge Carpenter, that again gets back to 7A39D. So I, I can understand the point that somehow that emergency directive limited that commission. I can understand that point. But again, the authority uh, beyond the commission comes from the North Carolina Constitution. I think that's what the Ely case really talks about, is that, and then when you have 7A39D that says nothing in the section uh, shall abrogate or diminish the inherent judicial powers of the judicial branch, that seems pretty clear that this is something that the judge could do. Well, there was a time when uh, commissions were issued for civil terms, and the judge was forbidden to conduct criminal evidence during the civil term unless the judge received a supplemental commission to conduct cr criminal matters. Now they're, they're dual purpose. They're primary civil with a criminal aspect or primary criminal with a civil aspect. So the, the thought that the Chief Justice can't limit the scope of the commission um, doesn't, doesn't comport with how I understand the process. Well, it, it would be interesting, and I'm not aware of any case, uh, and I know my time is about to run out, but I, I, I'm not aware of any case back in those days when some criminal evidence was taken or something was done outside of that commission. I mean, it would be interesting to see what the appellate courts would have said about that, but I'm, I'm not aware of anything. And it may very well have, have been held that it was within the inherent authority of the judge to do so. I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. It was just a thought that I had after listening to your argument. Thank you. We, we've had cases where uh, judgments have been issued out of term, out of session, where it does require parties' consent. So once the commission expires, the ability power of the judge at that point would expire without the consent. Do you agree with that too? I, I would agree with that, yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Mr. McGovern. Mr. Schatz, you have rebuttal time and since we did pepper you with a lot of questions, we'll give you a couple of extra minutes to that time if you need it. Thank you, Your Honor. I, I want to make a couple of quick points. So, your Honor uh, brought up the point that, that some, certainly some of the issues in this case were well litigated, and you, you brought up the, the evidentiary issues that are addressed in issue four in the brief, and those were certainly well litigated. But there are two parts to being effective as counsel. One is, is preparation, 
and one is being able to handle things when they come up in a lifetime. Let me, let me clarify one question. I'm sure. sorry to interrupt. Is there an ineffective assistance of claim asserted by your client in that context? The claim is not a freestanding ineffective assistance of counsel claim. It, it is a, a claim that the denial of the motion to continue, though, did mean that, that Mr. Woodley did not receive was on, you know, the denial, at least the risk of ineffective assistance of counsel. It's within the context of the uh, continuance, uh, yes. not stand-alone. Right, okay. So, so there, as I was saying, there, there are two parts to effective lawyering. One is the preparation, which is certainly critical, but also the ability to deal with things that come up in a lot of time, because every trial has things that come up uh, unexpectedly. Did, did Judge so, Foster, in his colloquy, did he adequately cover that, you think? Did he separate counsel's fear for personal health and personal situation from whether or not she had prepared to present the case? Yeah, yes, and we're not contending the problem here was lack of preparation. It was, it was inability to deal with things effectively as they came up that weren't anticipated. So, so there were motions in limine on, the, on those evidentiary issues that were heard even before COVID started in 2020, in like February of 2020. And, and so there were written motions. So that stuff was all already thought out and prepared and planned. But, but things that came up on the fly, such as the uh, trial judge coming up with this non-statutory jury selection procedure that, that, that is frankly came out of nowhere. And, and there was no reason counsel would have anticipated it. So she doesn't object. You have this thing that comes up with the three witnesses in the car who said they, they recognize the defendant because they pulled up his pictures on social media, but as they go through their testimony, each one of them denies being the one who, who pulled up the pictures. So, so nobody can really say that those pictures they looked at were pictures of Mr. Woodley. But, but she do, counsel doesn't respond to that because I, I don't think there's anything you, that would lead counsel to expect that. Now, so I want to, I, I agree, Your Honor, the trial court definitely separated out preparation versus counsel's mental state. And, and so on page 30, even before that, that specific colloquy you mentioned, the court says, I don't see any reason to go forward with this trial with the exception of one thing. I just had a defense counsel attorney tell me that she is not competent physically or emotionally to proceed with the trial on behalf of her client. So the trial court recognized, you know, at least sees that that's the concern. You know, the state, when it was up here, agreed that, that those were legitimate concerns. And what, what never, the trial court never makes findings of fact or in any way resolves why it's okay to move forward with counsel who is telling the court, I cannot effectively represent my client right now. Why, why that doesn't violate the, the client's right to counsel, the client's right to do, do process, in a, in, just in a broad fundamental fairness kind of sense. Um, and, and so the trial court never makes any findings of fact to resolve this. And I want to end by calling the court's attention to Holloway v. Arkansas, the United States Supreme Court case. And, and there's a different standard that applies when these kind of problems are brought to the trial court's attention uh, before the, before the trial, before the, the ultimate error is, is, is committed or, or may be committed. And, and so the U.S. Supreme Court in Holloway says, when defense counsel, as an officer of the court, tells the court there's a, there's a problem here, and then in that case it was multiple representations, but, but the U.S. Supreme Court says when an officer, when the defense counsel as an officer of the court tells the judge we've got these problems, the judge needs to either resolve it by, by continuing the case, in that case would have been appointing new counsel, and of course that would have meant a continuance, or making findings to explain why it's not a problem. Here we have no findings, we have the judge expressing this concern, everyone agrees, you know, the, the trial judge never suggests that he thinks Ms. Ruffin's expressions of concern are not genuine or credible, and yet he never explains why, after recognizing that problem, never explains why, why it's okay to proceed with the trial and never makes any findings or conclusions that will let this court understand why the trial court sort of acknowledged that problem but then didn't do anything about it. And unless there are any further questions. What would you have the court to do, Mr. Schatz? 
would have had, well, I think the obvious answer is that the court should have continued the case. The second choice would have been to withdraw defense counsel. Either of those, and, and that would have, of course, necessitated a continuance in any event. Um, either what, of those. What would you have this court do? Oh, I would have this court uh, vacate uh, the convictions and remand for a new trial. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Uh, I appreciate the good arguments. Ms. Clerk, will you adjourn court? Thank <laughs> you.